Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. An American broadcast journalist. Got the big break, ESPN, uh, dream come true. I was 29 years old, my head was spinning. I got to move back across the country to Connecticut and go work in Bristol, and I was at ESPN for eight years. The voice of Stanford Athletics. Words cannot express how much I love being the voice of Stanford football and basketball. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Scott Reese. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. America is a society obsessed with sports. We live for sporting contests and idolize the athletes who compete in these contests. Whether it be on the gridiron field court or beyond, we care deeply about who wins and how. When the athletes we admire flourish, we celebrate them. When they err, we feel their pain. They, in many ways, become extensions of ourselves. And the stories of these contests and athletes are told by a very special breed, the sportscaster. And they do so with particular acumen and aplomb. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders, Scott Reese, is a sportscaster with a storied career. A Stanford graduate with two degrees, a bachelor's degree in 1993 and a master's in 1994, Scott is the voice of Stanford Athletics, handling play-by-play duties for Stanford Cardinal football and basketball. Scott just wrote and published a book that shares the story of his rise in sports broadcasting, as well as the stories of 14 other sportscasters of note. It's a must-read for aspiring sportcasters and sports fans everywhere. Scott, welcome to the show. It is good to be with you, Howard. All right, so I like to start the show the same way every time, which is to ask my guest your Stanford origin story. Where were you when you applied? Why Stanford? Why Why did you become a member of the farm? Wow, that's a great question and one I haven't thought about in in a long time. So I appreciate the uh, opportunity to kind of stroll down uh, memory lane if the college application process can be a a positive experience. Uh, You know, it was 1989 was my freshman year. And uh, I looked at some Ivies and I looked at Northwestern, which is where my dad went. But for me, Stanford was uh, number one and it wasn't close. Um, Why? Grew up in Southern California, uh, Pac-12 country, at that point, Pac-10 country. Uh, so I uh, appreciated the, the combination of academics and, and athletics in terms of quality of, of student life. Uh, I love the fact that it was close enough that if I needed to drive home, I could be there in five hours to do laundry and uh, you know see the family and far enough away that uh, I was not home and, and had that, that buffer zone that was sufficient. So honestly, it was the best of all worlds Uh, When the fat envelope came in April of 1989, it was one of the happiest days of my life. And 
Never regretted it for a moment. I bet. So favorite Stanford memory? Wow. You know, it's funny, maybe just because I'm talking to you and I'm wearing the, you know, the athletic gear, but, but immediately I go to big game 1990 at Berkeley, right? So Stanford memory, but on the, on the Cal campus, uh, which was probably the second most ridiculous ending ever to a big game. We won't talk about the first. Uh, and, you know, the, the uh, multiple uh, supposed endings to the game and the Cal fans stormed the field and they took 15 minutes to get them off the field. And then, you know, a crazy sequence of touchdown, misconversion, onside kick with the penalty for the, you know, Cal fans on the field got penalized and then a late hit on the quarterback. So we kick a game winning field goal with five seconds left, win the game. And then we, the Stanford fans, danced on the field in Berkeley for 45 minutes after the game. I'd never experienced anything like it. It was at that point, the craziest ending to a sporting event I've ever seen. And I think it probably holds up pretty well, even 30 years later. Um, so for me, that that's instinctively, that's what jumps out at me. There are great moments, obviously on campus, and, you know, graduation and, and things like that. But but that is the, the one uh, consummate college experience was, was post big game 1990. And now were you a fan or were you a KZSU guy that day? I was a fan. That was before I started doing KZSU. I was there just as a fan. So I was a sophomore. Uh, I had gone with you know a bunch of fraternity brothers over to, to Berkeley and we kind of made a day of it. And we were there with our Berkeley chapter of, of SIGAP that I was, it was my house. And, and uh, you know, just had the whole kind of day long uh, tailgating and football experience. And then, you know, the game was so epic and, and you know, just the, the spontaneity, you know, for me, rushing a field after a college game. I'd never experienced anything like it. It was, it was super cool. So we're going to get into your book in a second here, but, but first I wanted you to share with the listeners over the course of maybe two or three minutes, your career, because it's been quite an interesting path you've taken and you talk about it in the book, but just to give the listeners just an overview of your path, because it's quite fascinating. You know, it is, and it's, uh, it's not, abnormal given my chosen line of work uh, and, and a lot of the book kind of deals with just what what a crazy uh, business the, the TV sports business is to try and break into and the lengths to which you must go uh, to achieve uh, not even success just to get in the door you know forget about you know reaching a certain level of success um, and so because of that I left Stanford in uh, 94 I had my undergrad or my uh, bachelor's degree in communication. I had my master's degree in sociology, and I had absolutely no idea how to go about getting a job being a, a TV sports anchor uh, reporter. Um, you know, I, I subscribed to Broadcasting and Cable magazine and, you know, started sending out resume tapes left and right. Didn't get a job for a year. Finally, and I can go into the story uh, a little bit more uh, detail if you want when we talk about the book, but I wound up uh, getting a job, which wasn't really a job. Uh, it was an unpaid sort of internship in Panama City, Florida with no promises of anything, but I moved across the country. Uh, I started doing TV about a week in, they put me on air, allowed me to start doing kind of report news reports and whatnot. Uh, I got material for an actual resume tape, right? Back then it was tapes, not, uh, not the reels and the digital reels uh, that it is now, uh, and, and got enough to sort of get the, uh, the second job or the first real job, as I like to say, which was in Utica, New York. Uh, they hired me as the five and six o'clock uh, news anchor. Uh, so I was doing news. I did a little bit of weather, got to fill in on sports whenever I was able to. Uh, I was there for a little over a year, came back west to Santa Maria, uh, the central coast, 
and got a job as a sports uh, anchor reporter for the CBS station there. I was there for three and a half years, got the big break, ESPN, uh, dream come true. I was 29 years old, my head was spinning. I got to move back across the country to Connecticut and go work in Bristol and I was at ESPN for eight years. Uh, doing uh, everything from baseball tonight to a little bit of sports center and a lot of college football and college basketball studio updates and wraps and, and NFL live and pretty much I was a, a company utility guy so I did pretty much every show in the building um, use that as uh, sort of a, a platform to come back west because that was always the plan was to get back to California uh, Comcast Sportsnet Bay Area started up in 2009, so it was my opportunity to, to jump on that bandwagon, came back to San Francisco. I've been in the Bay Area since, and somewhere along the way, Dave Fleming decided he was just a little too busy to keep doing Stanford football and basketball, and so I, I threw my hat in the ring for that, even though I didn't have a whole lot of play-by-play -play experience, but I figured that, you know, how cool would this be? I did it for KZSU a million years ago. How cool would it be, you know, to call games for, uh, for Stanford, actually get paid for it? So... I wound up getting that job and I've been doing it for the last, uh, what, nine years now and also worked for six years at, uh, at KTVU at the local Fox. And you've been doing it for Stanford for the last nine years and doing it incredibly well. You are the voice of Stanford yeah. football and basketball. So thank you for that. So let's talk a little bit about the book, Where They Were Then, Sportscasters. It's a wonderful book that tells the story of 15 different sportscasters, including yourself, and your paths to um, to stardom, I'll call it. So before we get deeply into it, why write this book? I mean, who's the intended audience? What were you trying to achieve? These are great stories, but I'd love to know why. So it's, it's sort of a two-tiered answer. I think that I have always wished that I had this book when I was out of college and had no direction and had no idea, not only how to go about really getting a job in this business, but what to expect when I got there. You know, I, I had heard anecdotes about, you know, you're going to have to move to a small town across the country you know, and, and just take whatever you can get. But it's one thing to hear that uh, in theory. It's another thing to actually understand what that entails and what your life is like, knowing you're going to bounce around every couple of years and that you have virtually no say as to where you might live in the country for the foreseeable future and really be willing to do all that. So a part of it for me has always been, boy, I would love to tell these stories just so uh, people who are about to embark on this journey have some sort of a roadmap to do it. Um, but that's a small audience. You know, that, that's, that's not, uh, you know, a, that, that's a pamphlet more than it is a book. Uh, but at some point along the way, and I talk about this actually in the first few pages, is, you know, I was having dinner with a friend of mine who was the target audience. She was uh, an aspiring broadcast journalism uh, broadcast journalist uh, who was looking for advice on kind of how to enter the the business. And I was regaling her with stories of just the the, the weird and crazy stuff I dealt with at my early jobs in Panama City and in Utica, New York, and she's dying with laughter thing. These are such great stories. You ought to write a book about this. And I said, well, it's funny because I've thought about it, but you know, my life isn't gonna sell books. You know, I, there's just not enough there. And she said, well, you got, you know, friends in, in the business, right? And I thought, you know what? That's genius because not only do I have friends who have gone through the same thing and have great stories, but I've got friends who are pretty high profile and, you know, nationally known sports anchors and reporters. So I kind of started doing the, the mental lifting of, all right, you know, how can we make this work? Who can we get? And it kind of took years to really uh, make it a reality. And it took a publisher willing to take a chance on doing it. But that happened in May. And six months later, 
you know, I got a pretty good list of contributors and, and we have a book. So that's, that's sort of the evolution of, of how it came about. In addition to telling great stories, and, and there are great stories in this book, there are some themes that emerged that I found fascinating. And one of the themes I found fascinating was the following. In order to be a sports journalist, a sports broadcaster, whatever you want to call it, one needs to pay one's dues. That seems to be a huge theme in the book. No one started where they ended, and everyone started in small places. I mean, you talk about Panama City and what you went through in Utica, right? Um, but everyone had that experience. Is that just by design in your industry? Is that so, sort of rite of passage? Is there a secret coda that makes you do that? You know, uh, I think that any of your economists uh, in the audience will appreciate the idea of supply and demand. Uh, there are very few sports television jobs relative to most other professions. I mean, you know, you think about even in a major media market like the Bay Area, right? How many sports TV sports anchors and reporters are there? Well, you got two or three at, at Fox. You got uh, two or three at ABC. You got two or three at CBS. You got only one at NBC. And then you got whatever's left of, of the Comcast Sportsnet crew, of which I was a part that has whittled down, down, down. And now it's a lot of freelancers and, and part-timers. So you can probably count on, I don't know, maybe four hands, maybe your hands and toes, how many jobs in my industry are available in the entire Bay Area, right? So, you know, you, you scale that to the entire nation and there's very few jobs and the pay is consummate with the uh, supply and the demand. In other words, the small market stations where everybody's got to start out and kind of take their lumps and make their mistakes and figure out how to do this because nobody's good at this off the bat. It's not a natural sport. You can't roll out of bed and be a great TV sports anchor. So you go to these small places. Well, they understand that they don't have to pay you because there's a line of 500 people out the door who all want to do this. It's a blast. Everybody wants to do sports TV, right? I mean, how many guys did you know in college who would have loved to do this for a living if they, if they really realistically could? And so, you know, you wind up going to the, the Utica, New York's and the Kearney, Nebraska's and the Kalispell, Montana's. And, you know, I can't speak to the entry level pay now, but for me, it was $13,500 a year. And yeah, that was a long time ago, but that still isn't a whole lot of money to live on, you know, when you've got a Stanford master's degree in your back pocket, right? And you're moving across the country with no guarantees of it getting any better, no guarantees of your prospects of being able to move up and get to one of these major markets because most, pe most people don't make it. So it's just sort of inherent in the, that there are so few jobs, the pay is terrible, but you can't start out in Los Angeles because you got to go figure out how to do this in a, in a big market in a, in a small. And not only do you have to start in a small market, but it, oftentimes in these small markets, as you wrote about in your own case, there are people there that are lifers and they have no interest in the upstart young guy trying to make his name in that small market. They want to keep you down. So you have forces that are not only the economic forces, but some social forces that are pushing you down. Um, very much, very much. So that leads to another theme that came through loud and clear in the stories that you shared, not that you shared, that were shared by others. Right. Um, grit, resilience, perseverance. I mean, I, I've never really thought about it before until I read your book, but I'm going to look at sportscasters in an entirely different way because they've gone through a lot to get to where they are where I'm watching, right? Because I live in a big market. So by definition, if you've made it to a big market, if I watch ESPN, you've gone through a lot. Um, is that still the case with so many news outlets out there? I mean, I know the supply and demand thing as it relates to the big names, but there are all kinds of places that show sports these days. Yeah, the, the, the landscape is changing uh, significantly. And I don't really get into this other than the last, you know, kind of chapter, sort of the epilogue to the book. 
Um, and, and frankly, it's been a long time since I've been, you know, looking for entry level sports TV jobs. And so I'm not as familiar with the landscape now, obviously, as I was back then. But um, the I think at its core, it is still similar. Right. If you're a, a broadcast journalism guy and you want to be a sports anchor or a news anchor or a weather anchor, I mean, it's similar across the board. If you, but if you want to do you know, TV broadcast journalism, radio to some extent, but more so TV, the jobs are tougher to get. Um, you know, I think you, you still have to start small. That hasn't changed. What has changed is the proliferation of, you know, Internet streaming options uh, of online news outlets. Um, they are uh, some of these startup operations are more willing to take a chance on younger talent because they value presence and look and, and, and other things more than they value uh, being polished being a great writer, uh, all the things that, you know, everybody in this book is great because of these experiences that got them to this pinnacle of TV. So another thing that struck me here is that it seems like for a lot of people who are successful sportscasters like you, um, you know, who are in their 50s, let's say, 40s and 50s, they dreamt about this from the day they were a little kid. I mean, most of us dream that we're going to be a professional athlete, perhaps, but some people said, no, no, I really wanted to be the guy or the woman doing that sportscasting. Um, that seemed to be a theme throughout mostly everyone in your book. I just found that fascinating. You know, it's funny because for me, what was more fascinating were the examples of those who did not fall into that category. Oh, I just, I expected everybody to have sort of a similar, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wanted to do this since I was a teenager and I did some in college. I did the student radio station. I loved it. So I decided this is what I want to do. And I pursued the career. It was like, you know, kind of A, B, C, D. Um, you know, you get a couple of folks uh, like, you know, Heidi Watney, who's just a, a doll. She's fantastic. She's at MLB Network, um, you know, who, who writes about, you know, she got her start in Fresno, which fortunately for her, she grew up in Fresno, which is a small enough area where she was able to kind of get, get her start in her hometown. Uh, but it was sort of a suggestion from a friend of hers because she loved sports. She loved performing. And a friend said, hey, why don't you come intern with me at this TV station? And she sort of stumbled into it, got the job there, and it led to you know her interest in TV. Uh, but she didn't go through high school and college saying, yeah, I want to be a broadcast journalist. Uh, I want to be a, a broadcast journalist. Uh, Scott Van Pelt, I mean, he's the, the consummate example of sort of the anti-story, as I, as I mentioned in the book. Um, and there, there is... There are few people more talented uh, in my eyes than, than SVP and what he does in that show on a nightly basis. This is Stanford Pathfinders and I'm Howard Wolf. Stay tuned to learn more about what you should do if you want to become a sports broadcaster. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf and I'm speaking with sportscasting veteran Scott Reese about his new book, Where They Were Then, and how the road to success in sportscasting not only has many directions, but many ups and downs as well. What are your favorite stories from the book? They're all really good, and they should be, because you consider the source. Everybody except for Heidi either has worked or still works at ESPN, right? And you don't get to that level by accident. You don't get to that level without being incredibly talented and a great writer. Um, so you've got 15 great writers telling their stories. I've gotten the question, well, you know, how come you didn't just write the book, right? Why did you you know, use 15 different people writing their own stories. And, and the answer is simple. I mean, I, I can't tell Kenny Maine's story better than Kenny Maine can tell his story. I mean, there, there is nobody like him. There's nobody like 
Neil Everett. There's nobody like John Butchagross. And the style that they bring to the TV is exactly what comes through in their chapters. So I, I couldn't do it justice. So, I mean, for me, that was a big part of it. And that's sort of a roundabout answer to your question is the, the, the stories are so good because they're telling their own stories in their own unique styles. So hearing Neil talk about how, you know, he got fired from a, a job in Hawaii because he went rogue, uh, meaning he got an opportunity to do play-by-play -play on like a small cable access station. It was like a religious station. He got an opportunity to call a college basketball game and he took it and he did it. And they called him into the principal's office and said, hey, you know, that's a conflict. You can't go do this for another station. And, you know, it was like, you know, the Dodgers getting mad at one of their players, you know, because um, he played in like a, you know, Little League All-Star game. I'm right. I mean, this this was such a small time thing that he did. It shouldn't have ruffled anybody's feathers. But Neil being Neil, instead of just saying, sorry, I shouldn't have done it, he came back and basically said, well, I think you need to adjust your uh, standards if you really feel like that's competition. He got fired from his TV job for that. And he applied to like a, a, a water waste treatment plant to try and change careers. And he couldn't get that job, right? I mean, so it, it literally like the, the the stories about folks who were not only trying to get these these gigs that are so hard to get, but getting fired from some of these jobs and still somehow picking themselves up and and wind up, you know, getting to, to ESPN or Fox or MLB or whatever the uh, the end all be all. Um, it's it's entertaining and it's also pretty inspiring because you know they they got slapped around a little bit and they picked themselves up and they wound up you know succeeding big time. Or perhaps someone that's sort of a general manager of sorts and gets to do the laundry for the team, right? <laughs> that was also one of my favorites. Um, you know, Dave Fleming was uh, a very specific ask for me uh, as we were putting together the roster for this book. Um, I started to, you know, because I, being blessed to, to have been at ESPN for eight years, you know, my Rolodex is uh, full of national sports talents and, 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 you know, big name guys. And so, you know, it's easy to just, oh, let's get this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And at some point I had to sort of stop and say, you know what, what I don't want is 15 of the same stories. And I don't want as much as I think my story is great. And I think, you know, uh, Neil's story is great and Stan Verrett's story is great. At some point I didn't need 15 sports anchors who had all done exactly the same thing. So I thought I need to vary it at least a little bit. I want, a, let me get a print guy who is now a TV sports guy, right? So Andy Katz was, was my first call there and he's, he's great. And, and, and he, he was in. And, and so we have Andy in the book, uh, you know, he's, he was a journalism guy, right? And then ESPN made him into a TV guy as they tend to do. Um, and then it was, all right, we got to get one play by play guy, right? And, you know, for me, it's not about the play-by-play. -play. It's not about that part of my career. I wanted a guy who did not come through the TV broadcast journalism thing. He went a different track, but probably has great stories in his own right. So, you know, Flem was the obvious, right, with the Stanford connection and everything else. So uh, I called him, and he thought it was a great idea. And, uh, I mean, his story is without question one of my favorites. Uh, and you alluded to some of the duties, you know, wh when he was – uh, doing the radio broadcast for the Visalia Oaks, you know, minor league uh, baseball, a ball. Um, he, uh, his title was something to the effect of, you know, radio broadcaster slash assistant general manager. 
And like, wow, that, you know, 24 years old and you're an assistant general manager for a baseball team. That sounds pretty cool, right? And, you know, you read it, you read the stories and you find out that it's not so cool. It basically meant you need to do anything within the organization. And I mean, anything that needed to be done because the guy who's supposed to be doing it wasn't there or was sick or was off for a week or on vacation or whatnot. So you alluded to it. So I'll, I'll you know, fill in the blanks. D Dave actually spent his 24th birthday uh, washing jock straps. Uh, as the assistant general manager of the Visalia Oaks, because that was part of his job description before he went and broadcasted the game, of course, on the same. So I'm curious about one thing, and it's not in the book, so I'm just going to kind of veer off track here a little bit. You are the voice, play-by-play -play voice of Stanford football and basketball. You're a huge Stanford fan. Yes. And when we have challenging seasons or challenging games, and you're doing the play-by-play, -play and you... You have opinions, you have thoughts, you have things, but at the same time, you're the official voice of Stanford football and basketball. The tension there must be tremendous. I don't like to complain about stuff like that because I love calling these games. You know, even when we lose, it's painful and the experience is difficult, but I still wouldn't trade it. First of all, I love doing play-by-play, -play, and so to do it for my university of which I am so proud of, you know, the, the history and everything else, and that I'm such a fan of, you know, you, you, you just, words cannot express how much I love being the voice of Stanford football and basketball. Um, but that said, yeah, it's tough when things go south, um, you know, and, and it's sometimes it's within the context of a game, right? Maybe it's one game that you need to get to a bowl game, to win a division, to, you know, get to the NCAA tournament, whatever it might be. And you just, you know how much is on the line and things start to go south and, and, and it's, it's tough. It is tough. And, you know, I am, I'm human and I'm sure there are times when frustration shows through, you know, I'm sure that, you know, from time to time, because I am invested and I am a fan and I, you know, it makes me angry when, you know, we don't succeed. So that's part of it. Um, and then there's, you know, some of the bigger picture trends, you know, where you see, you know, with obviously having a, a tough football season, for instance, where it's not so much, you know, within each game as it is just, you know, kind of thinking, man, you know, where we were six, seven years ago and how difficult it is now to, to, to kind of watch what's going on. And, you know, it is, uh, it is tough to reconcile. But you also, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Because you'll get criticized if you are too, you know, frustrated, angry, annoyed, you know, in your broadcast when things don't go well, you also get labeled a homer and, you know, lose some credibility when, you know, your team is losing 37 to three and you're, you know, trying to point out the positives and stay peppy and happy and have fun on the broadcast and that sort of thing, uh, as opposed to, you know, giving opinions you might have about what might be going wrong. In our final 30 seconds, imagine if you will, that you have some college kids listening to this podcast three pieces of advice for them as they think about becoming you someday the first one is easy don't <laughs> you need to really 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 want it unless you are 1000 percent sure that this is what you want to do and you are willing to do anything to make this your career you can't do it go a different way because it's not worth it secondly uh you know expect the unexpected Right, because you may think, okay, I've just got to go to small market Nebraska or small market North Dakota, and then I know you don't know. You have no idea what it's going to be like on any level, uh, you know, personally or professionally. So go in with an open mind. And third, you know, I hate to say it, but have a backup plan. You know, for me, it was the master's degree. That was part of the reason that I stayed and got the co-term was because there are no guarantees in this business. The odds are really, really long of you becoming the next Scott Van Pelt. 
So have a plan B. Don't, you know, put all your eggs in one basket just in case. Great advice and counsel. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it having you here. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app or wherever you'd like to find your podcasts.